Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in uh, the letter of Ephesians. Uh, We've been studying through the book of Ephesians now for uh, six weeks, I think. And so we are um, coming up to Ephesians chapter 3. We actually, last week was our first week in here. And so uh, I skipped ahead one little section and did uh, Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14 through 21, where Paul uh, has his prayer for the Ephesians. And so since it was our first weekend here, Paul prays some specific things for the Ephesian church. And I thought these things would be really good things for us to kind of start out with and pray for our, our uh, particular church as well. So um, I next, last week went to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This week, uh, I'm going to go back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and start there and go from 1 to verse 13. So uh, we've already done chapters 1 and 2, seeing Paul, how he explains the gospel uh, and, uh, to the Ephesian church and reminding them what's going on. And uh, we did 3.14 last week, the prayer to the, to the uh, city of Ephesus. And now we're going, or church at Ephesus. Now we're going to go to 3.1 and look at 1 through 13. So uh, here at Remedy, whenever we read the text, we stand. Uh, So if you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand as we read chapter 3, starting verse 1 through 13. And then afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God, signifying a couple things. One, you're thanking the Lord that he would give us his word. But also, two, uh, as you say, thanks be to God, you're saying in your heart and mind, Whatever I hear and whatever I learn and whatever I see in your text, Lord, yes, I want to be obedient to it. So let's all stand and we'll read the text together. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And then uh, we'll pray together. So chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We ask that as we look into it, Lord, that you would be gracious, that you would be kind to teach us, to lead us into truth, to help us see and understand um, all the riches inside of this text. We pray that as, as we study and as we look and as we understand, that our hearts would be set aflame for Christ and that we would... Uh, We would find ourselves more in love with Christ for what he's done for us. I pray that if anyone here doesn't know Jesus, God, that you would save them as we look at this text. And that they would see and understand just how amazing Jesus is that he would give his life. uh, And they would see and understand a different avenue or facet of the gospel. And they would believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I, I uh, drink coffee uh, a lot, and sometimes at night, and I know that's not necessarily the smartest thing, but sometimes I do, and sometimes I drink coffee in my bed uh, when I'm sitting there with my wife, and uh, uh, whenever I'm finished, I'll put it on the little bedside table here, and I'll go to sleep, and if I don't remember to pick it up and move it into like a higher place, my two-year-old will come to me the next morning, and, he'll, and he doesn't say I, he says me, Daddy, me drink your coffee, and I was like, oh, you did, let's see, and he walks me over to the coffee cup, and he shows me, and he starts to pick it up like he's going to do it again, cold coffee, uh, and I, I stop him, and I realized at, just a f- few days ago when he told me this, that this was, even though it was cold, the very first time that my son had drank coffee, so I immediately went into prayer, Lord, he has finally partaken of the sweetness and goodness of the bean. And so would you now, now he has seen and tasted just how good this is, help him glory in the coffee. Help him understand just how amazing it is. I'm praying that he'll see and be able to see immeasurably more than he can ever ask or imagine about just how awesome coffee is. I, I, of course, I didn't do that. But the point is, it's, what I just said is exactly what Paul is doing in this text. They have seen and understood and tasted, as he's explained to them in chapters 1 through 2, the gospel. And so as he's explained to them the good news of the gospel, what we saw last week is that since they are an understanding of that gospel, he lifts them up in prayer and prays that they would be able to understand the riches of the glory of the gospel. They would, they would be used by God to do immeasurably more, etc. So uh, what we're doing in three one that's what happened in chapters 1 through 2 as he explained the gospel. And at the very end of chapter 3 is where Paul prays for the Ephesian church based on, you can actually see it in 3.14, for this reason, he's pointing back to all the things that he said in chapters 1, two, one through 2 about the gospel and then prays for them. Now, um, if you go with me to three chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, you're going to see the exact same three words. For this reason, and then it goes into a, a different kind of line. So why does 3.14 and 3.1 start, both start with for this reason? Here's why. Have you ever started to pray, and all of a sudden you're talking for a second, or you're just about to start, and, all right, dear God, and you're like, oh, man, i got to uh, do this thing over here. And like you go back, and you finally, and then you come back, and you're like, okay, after I finish that. God, and then you go back to your prayer. Ever done anything like something remotely like that? I'm sure you have because we're all kind of scatterbrained, right? Uh, Paul is doing that at this particular moment. So at 3-1, after he's finished in chapters 1 through 2, explaining the good news of the gospel for them individually, the good news for how Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to each other, and all these things, he goes into 3-1, and he's going to start the prayer, which we looked at last week in three chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for you on behalf of you Gentiles, and then has this dash, assuming, and then he goes off into this long excursus. And so what he's doing is he's about to pray, but then he remembers, ah, I need to say a few things before I pray just to explain to him. So it goes into this kind of long parentheses. This long parentheses is is about mission. So it's a missiological parentheses. Hence, missiological parentheses before the prayer. This in verses 1 through 13 is this big, long statement. uh, It's several sentences of what he wants them to know before he prays for them. And so what we're looking at in verses 1 through 13 is... Uh, it's about mission. It's about what it means to be on mission. Uh, but it's a long kind of parenthetical statement of Paul uh, and excursus. Now, if I go on a holy rabbit trail, um, it might be, might be awesome, right? But, but it's still this me doing it, right? But since Paul goes on a rabbit trail in the book of Ephesians, it's not a really sidetrack or rabbit trail per se because it's still God's word. So this is, this is God's word on a parenthetical statement 
which means it has just as much to teach us as chapters 1 and 2 and the rest of 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. But that's what's going on here. Paul's going on a, on a side trail right before he's about to pray because he's remembering, oh, I'm about to pray for them as the church. I really want them to understand some things about what it means to be the church before I pray for them. So you can... That's why he does this verses 1 through 13. So starting at verse 1, for this reason, which we've already explained why he does that. It says, I, Paul, a prisoner, notice this, for Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, which, which, which would be true, a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say a prisoner of Rome. Even though he was a prisoner of Rome, he says a prisoner for, for Christ Jesus. Which means that Paul has an unwavering adherence to the sovereignty of God in his life. Um, which is just absolutely breathtaking. No matter what circumstances are befalling him, good or bad, he is wholly willing to see that it's from Christ and that it's good and that he's willing to suffer through it. As a matter of fact, he finishes this little statement, as you saw in verse 13, telling the Ephesian church not to be worried. You can see verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. I'm suffering for you, um, which is your glory. He says something similar about the for you in 3.1. Where he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's saying he's a prisoner for the Gentiles. Why would he say that he's a prisoner for the Gentiles? Well, as you know, um, Paul is a minister to the Gentiles. His name used to be Saul, got saved in Acts chapter 9. Uh, and as he got saved in Acts chapter 9, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. Uh, it's not one of those things where God changed it from Abram to Abraham, Saul to Paul. He changed his own name from Saul to Paul. And the reason why he changed his own name from Saul to Paul is because Saul is a Jewish name. Paul is the Gentile version of that name. And so he thought, well, since I'm the, since God's called me to be the, the gospel or the minister to the Gentiles, I'm even going to change my name for the sake of mission so that I can reach them. So call me Paul from now on, which means incidentally little. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but um, he, wa- he was a wee little man, almost like Zacchaeus. He was little. He was short, short in stature, big in heart. Anyway, so what we have here is that uh, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So the reason why it's on behalf of the Gentiles is because God had put this call on Paul to be a minister to the Gentiles, which he willingly accepted. He was totally fine to be the minister to the Gentiles. But because he was the minister to the Gentiles, going up from Jerusalem into the Gentile lands, preaching the gospel, uh, he got arrested for that. And when he got arrested, they put him in jail, which he's gladly and willingly willing to happen to his life as a prisoner for the Gentiles because he wants the Gentiles to come to know Christ. And then it says, assuming that you've heard. Of the stewardship of God's grace. So he's writing to this church in Ephesus. He's saying I'm assuming that you've heard about me. And that I'm a prisoner. Or that I'm a minister. And that I've been put in jail. Now he did uh, plant the gospel there. And he was kind of the first church planter in Ephesus. So uh, the assuming that you've heard. Means I'm assuming that most of you know who I am. Since I planted that church. However it's been a few years since I've left. And hopefully that church has reached some more people. uh, And it's not just the same people. So there's some new people in this church of Ephesus. So I'm writing this. Assuming that most of you know. But maybe not all of you know. About who I am. And uh, why I'm writing to you. And why this letter is something that I want you to read. And even to pass along to some of the other churches in the region. Assuming that you've heard of. And then he says this particular phrase. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me in in, in verse 2. Now, 
Um, that little phrase, stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, word for word in the Greek is actually repeated in verse 7. So in verse 7, he says, um, of this gospel, I was made a minister. And it says, here it is, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. Now, in our English, it's a little different. Stewardship of God's grace that was given to me according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. Now, it's very similar in the English, but in the Greek, it's the exact same. It's the exact same word for word. So as Paul's writing this, what he's doing for us is outlining for us how to understand verses 1 through 13. When he uses those exact same phrases and calls it a gift, a, a divine gift of God to him and then says what it is. And then he says a divine gift of God and then says what it is. What we can see in the text are there are two divine gifts that were given to Paul. And here they are. And so we can understand the text. So in verse 2. Uh, you can see, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So this particular sermon is the two gifts of divine grace that was given to Paul. And since they're given to Paul, we have uh, a benef- we're, we're, we're uh, awesome beneficiaries as well of this divine graces that he's given. Not exactly the same, but similar. No doubt similar. So the first divine gift that he was given is this. You can see it in verses 2 through 6 is the revelation or the revealing. God revealed something to him, which is namely the mystery. The mystery has been revealed to him. Now he explains it all in verses two through six. Um, It was given to him. And Paul sees that since this was given to me, this is a gift that he received. He sees this, this revealing of this mystery that was explained to him as a gift. So what is it? What are we talking about here? And incidentally, when we hear the word mystery, it's not like a, uh, a whodunit. Like we're like, who did it? We got to figure it all out for ourselves. What's going on? It's behind every corner. Be spooky. It's not one of those things. When we see mystery, it's something that while in some respects was kind of um, uh, closely guarded in the past. But now this mystery has been revealed. It's open. It's not like you've got to walk around the corner and finally at the very end of the movie, you're going to figure it out. God's just opened it up big time. Here's the mystery. I want you to know what it is. It's for you. It used to be closed, but now it's wide open. It's no suspense thing. It's no big secret. Um, so that's what's going on. So let's, let's understand this mystery that's been revealed to him. Paul sees this mystery that's been revealed to him as a gift. It's a gift of God that it's been revealed. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how this mystery was made known to me by revelation. That means God specifically chose Paul and revealed this gift, this mystery to him, uh, has now been made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, that's he's talked about this mystery in, in, in chapter 2 already, which is that Jews and Gentiles are coming together. But we'll, we'll see that. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ from chapter 2, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So before, in the Old Testament, they fully didn't understand this mystery. They didn't understand how Jews and Gentiles are going to be put together. But now, this mystery in Paul has finally been revealed to him, and he writes about it in chapter 2. And he says, it was not... Uh, made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles and prophets by the spirit. The mystery is verse six. Here it is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. And he says 
this is an amazing gift that God has actually given to me that I get to understand and see and, and know that Gentiles are now uh, partakers and fellow heirs and, and members of the same body as Jews. So Paul uh, gets this first divine grace, which is the mystery has been revealed to him where it used to be kind of closely guarded. Now it's explained to him and Paul gets to be the one to explain it to others. Now, I want to trace with you really quickly uh, in the text the, the kind of the stages of redemptive history of how this mystery, this won't be on the screen, of how this mystery had unfolded. First, it says in verse 9, this mystery was hidden in God. Verse 9, bring, bring to light what was planned of the mystery which was hidden for ages in God. So it was hidden for a while in God, as it says in verse 9. And then second, the mystery was kind of withheld from some of the previous generations, as we just read in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of man and other generations. And then after it was hidden in God and kind of withheld from those generations, then it was finally revealed to the apostles and the prophets, as it says in verse 5. It has now been revealed to his holy prophets, Apostles and prophets. And then finally, it was specifically made known in redemptive history, history straight to Paul, as it says in verse 3. Uh, this mystery was made known to me by revelation. So the stages of this redemptive history of mystery, history, mystery, that's pretty funny. Uh, as it unfolded them, came in that particular way. As it was um, hidden for God, hidden in God, and then it was not made known to other sons. And then it was finally revealed to apostles and prophets, and then specifically given to Paul here. Uh, now, the mystery, as it says in verse 6, has kind of this three-pronged um, uh, three pronged effect or three-pronged description as it's given to the Gentiles. You can see it right there. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise. So what I want to do is explain the three of these so that we can understand more fully uh, what Paul is trying to help them understand in the mystery. Now... Before we explain these three, which are right there in the text, that it'll come up here uh, as we're looking at it. It'll, this will be on the screen. I want us to make sure that we can feel just how truly shocking and surprising this is to them. So try to do your best to hear this as a first century hearer. And remembering, if you don't know the Old Testament, some of the things that were commanded to the people who were Jewish regarding the pagan nations around them. For the Old Testament, several times, those who were Israelites, those who were Jewish, were commanded to kill the pagans around them. Because the pagans were trying to come in and take their land. And they said, those people that are around you, you should go and you should destroy the Abbasites and the Jebusites and all the sites. You know, get rid of all those different little sites and get, get rid of them because they shouldn't be around you. And as a matter of fact, if they come near you, don't touch them. If you touch them, you have to go through an entire cleansing process for at least a week or so before while you're separated from all of them. Never, ever, ever, ever have children with these people. Never, ever be around them. Don't touch them. Definitely never have children with them do not trust them stay away from them for thousands and thousands of years they've been told kill them stay away from them don't have children from them don't intermix with them don't practice their religious things don't trust them don't ever befriend them never get married to them and then all of a sudden after thousands of years of being told this jews are told hey guess what those gentiles they're just like you they're brought into the family and it's not like they have to level up through judaism to finally get to christianity they're here you're here, you're both the same. As a matter of fact, it says in 2.15, it says that he has abolished the laws and commandments and ordinances and he's created in himself, not Jews, not Gentiles, but one new man in place of the two and making peace between the two. 
So imagine as this, I mean, history upon history upon years upon years has been unfolding. And all of a sudden, Jews and Gentiles are hearing this news. And the mystery is, Gentiles are now just like you who are Jewish. They're fellow heirs. Gentiles who are just like you, they're members of the same body. Gentiles who are just like you, they're partakers of the promise. So let's look at those three things as they say. First, they're fellow heirs. You can go ahead and put up the first one. Kind of the three-pronged mystery regarding the Gentiles, the, the effect or now what's, what's true of them. First is that they're fellow heirs. In Romans chapter 8, uh, it talks about what it means to be a fellow heir. Uh, and this is in chapter 8, starting at verse 16. 8.16 says this. Um, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So, these particular people who are Jewish and Gentile are now hearing that we are heirs of fellow heirs with, Gentile, with Jews. And not only that, that means that we are now children of God. That we are part of the family of God. That's the first uh, mystery that's being revealed to the Gentiles. The second one is that they're now members of the same body. It says in 2.19, uh, just, you know, what, 10 verses above. In 2.19 it says, so then you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. But you're now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you're members of the same body. You're members of the same house of God. Which means if, if a Jew feels pain, Gentile, you feel pain. Jew, if a Gentile feels pain, so do you. You're members of the same body. You're all together now in the same family. So that whenever one suffers, you all suffer. And you all feel that. You're not just a fellow heir. You're not just a member of the same body. But you're also, as it says, the third one, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. He talks about this in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Remember that you're at one time separated from Christ, talking to those who are Gentiles, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And here it is, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. But now that you're in Christ, you're not a stranger to the covenant. You're actually a partaker of the promise of Christ Jesus. All the Abrahamic covenant that was given to him in, in Genesis chapter 12 you're partakers of that covenant now. All the Davidic covenant, you're partakers of that. All of the promises ever made to those who are Israelites, those who are Jewish, Gentiles, you actually partake in those exact same promises with them through Christ. You can just imagine how this hits the Jews. Like, this is so shaking to them. This is so earth-shattering. This is so vastly different than anything they've ever heard of or ever been used to. They have to now get used to being the fact that Gentiles, whom they've always been told to stay away from, are just like them. And same thing for the Gentiles. They've always been outside the window, outside the gate, outside the, the, the curtain, never allowed into the Holy of Holies. And now they're saying, as it says in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, which we just read, now we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. As it says in 3.12, you, you're just as much invited into the inner uh, throne room with Jesus as the Jew. That's what he's told to the Gentile. So this is truly shocking and surprising. This mystery that's being unfolded. And Paul sees as this mystery is coming to him that this is an amazing gift. That he actually gets to see and understand this. And in chapter 2, write it and explain it to the Ephesian church. So that's the first 
grace gift or divine gift of grace that's been given to him. Now, as he's talking about this first divine grace gift, this mystery, he starts explaining how it relates to the gospel in verses 6 and verse 7. So he says, this, this is the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, particularly the promise in Christ Jesus. And then he says it comes through the gospel, through good news, through the proclamation of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. When people believe and trust in that, when they understand the good news, those who are Gentiles are now brought in now into this family. It says it's through the gospel. And then it says, verse 7, of this gospel, of this good news, Paul, I was made a minister of that proclamation of the good news of Christ. What he's done, I was made a minister. And that's when he goes into that second gift. So uh, the mystery that was revealed to Paul, it was God speaking to Paul. So the mystery, this is how the mystery is different from the actual gospel. The mystery is God revealing and explaining to Paul what the mystery is. The gospel is the truth being expressed by Paul back to people. So that's how the mystery and the gospel are different. But he's, he's uh, talking about both of them. And now as he starts talking about the gospel, the first divine grace gift, which is the mystery being revealed, the first divine grace gift leads or actually makes the second divine grace gift possible. You can't have this second divine grace gift, which is in verse 7, without having the first divine grace gift. So since God has given the gift of Paul to understand the mystery of who the Gentiles are and how they are brought into the family. Since that happens, he says, this happens through the gospel. And that is the, of this gospel, I'm made a minister. Now the second divine grace gift is possible. What is the second divine grace gift? Just get to it. All right, good. Here it is. Oh, it's already up there. I was speaking ahead. It's the commission. The ministry entrusted to him. So the, the revelation was given to him, which is that Jews, I'm sorry, that Gentiles are now brought into the family. And so since that's the case, the second gift he's given of this gospel, I was made a minister of this proclamation that Gentiles can be in the faith, this commission. I've been made a minister. And look at this. When he's been made a minister, someone who gets to tell people about what Christ has done, he sees that as a gift of this minister, of the, um, of this gospel, I was made. He didn't make himself one. Don't forget that. God made him one. I was made a minister. Here it is. According to the gift of God's grace. So he sees that the fact that he gets to tell people about Jesus. And proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles as a gift from God. That he, This is a gift from God he gets to do. Now, that leads us into this second gift. It's the commission. So the first was the revelation. The mystery revealed. The second is the commission, the ministry now entrusted to him that he gets to proclaim to other people. And he sees it as a privilege, as a privilege. As a matter of fact, uh, in verse eight, he talks about he outlines or uh, at least says points us to his humility and just how amazing he thinks it is of a privilege. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was was given to me by the working of his power to me uh, of his power to me. Though here it is, I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach. So Paul sees himself as the least of all the saints. He doesn't say the least of all the apostles. He actually broadens it out to the least of all the saints. He sees himself as the very least of all the saints. Now his name Paul means little. And so uh, in Latin it means little. And so what Paul is doing here is he's actually saying that 
when he calls himself the least of all the saints, he's making up a word, which I like to do. I can, I can identify with that. He says, I'm the leastest of all the saints. I'm the leastest of all the saints. So that's, you can use that. It's Pauline. Since Paul's in the Bible, he wrote the Bible. Then it's from God. So you can use the word little. So it's actually from God. Um, he does make up a word here. He goes, I'm the leastest of all the saints. And that's why we have in our English the very least. Uh, but the point is, is taken, right? It's this. The gospel has been revealed to Gentiles. And Paul was made a minister and then was given this privilege to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Why would he say, why would he look at it as such a privilege? And why would he call himself the least of all the saints? Well, uh, as we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, we're actually studying in a large setting, the book of Acts. So we're in chapter 20. And as we got into chapter 20, we looked at Paul plant the church in Corinth and we preached the Corinth first Corinthians. And we saw Paul and later on in 2021 preached uh, plant the church in Ephesus. So we're studying the book of Ephesians and we finish Ephesians. We'll go back to Acts and keep finishing. Uh, But if you remember in Acts chapter nine, we see why Paul calls himself the least of all the saints Uh, in Acts At the very end of Acts chapter 7, there's a Christian named Stephen that's being stoned. And as he's being stoned, Paul, who's called Saul there, is standing there approving of it. So he goes, hey, Stephen, before you kill this, uh, or guys, before you kill this guy, Stephen, let me hold all your coats for you and stand here and approve of this while it happens. Now, stonings, which I pointed out in Acts chapter 7, you know, five years ago, whatever it was, we were there. Like, stonings don't happen like in 15 seconds. It takes a strong hour to kill a man by throwing rocks at him. So Paul's standing there holding his coats while rocks are just continually be throwing at this righteous man that did nothing. While he holds the coats and they kill Stephen. And then after that, he's like, here's all your coats back. And then it says in verse 8, uh, in chapter 8, that Saul approved of this execution. And on that day, great persecution then began to rise all throughout the city of Jerusalem, instigated by Paul. Saul at the time, no doubt at all. It says in verse 3 that Saul was actually ravaging the people of God, ravaging the church. He was ravaging those who called themselves Christians by entering house after house after house, dragging off men and all the women there and taking them and putting them in prison and no doubt bringing persecution to them. And so Paul, after that, has rights to go to the next city. So he's on his way to the next city. And as he's going, you know the story in Acts 9. God shines the light down. He's like, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Christ. And then he saves him. And then he calls himself an apostle after that. And then you can see this in, in uh, Acts chapter 9. And then he says, even in verse 15, that Paul is a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before the Gentiles and the kings of children of Israel. And he's going to show how much he will suffer for the, for the sake of his name. And so Paul realizes, like all at once, The king that I used to try to kill and all of his people that I used to try to kill, I actually work for him now. And what they were doing was right. And so I was actually opposing Jesus. That's the worst thing I could ever do is try to stop the proclamation of the gospel. And so with the same type A personality he had to stop the gospel from spreading and kill everyone, transfer is over. Now he wants to proclaim the gospel and make everybody a Christian. But because he actually killed people of the church and approved of it, he sees of himself as the very least of any saint because he worked against the church before he was actually saved. And so since the Lord actually saved him and said, no, no, 
Even though you did that, guess what? You get to come and preach the gospel now to those who are Gentiles. He sees that as just one of the most unbelievable privileges he could have. As it says in verse 7, a gift of God's grace was given to him. Now, don't miss this, okay? This is the exact same for you. It is a privilege for us to be able to preach the gospel to people. Just like Paul. We should see it the exact same way. It is a gift of God's grace to be able to tell other people about Jesus. We should look at it with the same awe and wonder as Paul. He got to preach the gospel to people he opposed. So did we. We opposed Jesus at one point, And now we get to preach the gospel for him. So we should see it just like Paul. The great privilege that it is. And count ourselves just like Paul as the very least of all the saints. And I think when we do that, we'll actually find ourselves more likely to share the gospel. Not less likely. Now, he explains to us this mission that he's been given. The second divine grace is the commission. In verses 8, 9, and 10, he explains to us this mission that God's been given to him. You can see it in verse 8, 9, and 10. To me, though I was very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone the, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he explains what is this mission that he's been given in verses 8, 9, and 10. And if you noticed, the way he explains the mission is he starts small and then he works the commission that he's been given out. So we're going to do that. We're going to start small and see. These are three kind of concentric circles of commission. So here it is. Three concentric circles. of. I, I, I even alliterated it kind of. I know circle isn't a hard C, but whatever. Um, so three concentric circles of commission. If you feel like you need to have it that way. Three concentric circles of commission. Now, that means this is Paul's uh, Circles of commission, but even for us, right? This is what Paul has been told to do. And in a similar way, we can apply it to our own lives. So let's look at them. Number one, you can see it in verse eight. It is to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number one, preach to the Gentiles, the riches of Christ. That's the first thing he's supposed to do. When that small circle, those who are Gentiles around him, go preach to them, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, this word preach is euangelizo. Uh, it's uh, the same word as uh, euangelion, which means gospel. Euangelizo is the verb to announce the gospel or to announce the good news. And so Paul is saying that he is now preaching and proclaiming this good news, euangelizo. And what he's preaching, this good news, is explained as the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul has, in some measure, outlined the unsearchable riches of Christ for us in chapters 1 and 2. We've seen a lot already that before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adoption. Jesus actually came and redeemed us. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit that we were once devil worshipers in chapters, chapter 2, 1 through 3. But God was rich in mercy and with great love. He loved us. By grace, he saved us through faith. And then he pulled us out of bad deeds and set us on good deeds that we could walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. And not only that, that's kind of how it's happened individually, but he's also brought Jews and Gentiles who have always been enemies and actually 
actually brought them together. The, the vertical relationship with God has been restored. But now even the horizontal relationship between man has been restored. And has made them one new man as it says in 2.15. So he's already started explaining to us this unsearchable riches of Christ. But don't miss this. The unsearchable riches of Christ means that even if we're, you were to go out on a, an adventure or a journey to, to know everything there is to know about the good news of Christ, you would never reach an end of it. You would never, ever reach an end. It doesn't mean don't ever do it. It means do it and just realize that as you do it, you'll f- continually find more and more and more and more forever, forever and ever. And the riches that Paul already had, he wants to give to other people, which is the same for us. You actually possess these riches in Christ. You possess the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, imagine if you were just a quadrillionaire, like you're just, you had so much money, you could actually help anybody you ever wanted and you would never even feel it. Like it would never hit your bank account, right? Think of the gospel in that way and your sharing of the gospel. You have riches that you can just unload on people as the biggest gospel philanthropist ever. Right? You could just unload the gospel and you will never run out of the riches that you just gave them. You just go back to the bank and get some more and unload the gospel philanthropy on the next person. Here's what Christ has done for you. You have these unbelievable riches that's been given to you. And we should feel and understand just how much we have felt or been given in these riches. And then I think that we'll do more. John Stott, he diagnoses the Christian's slowness to do evangelism. He says, once we are sure that the gospel is both true from God, which is, I think, where we are. But also riches for mankind, nobody will ever be able to silence us. I think the reason why Christians are slow to do evangelism, perhaps silent, is they understand that it's truth from God. But they haven't really taken in the fullness of the riches of the unsearchable riches of Christ that's actually already theirs. And so since you're loaded as a gospel philanthropist, you can share that as much as you want with people and you'll never run out. Because it's like a rich storehouse never to run out. So preach the gospel as much as you can. If we're going to apply here in this first concentric circle. Preach the gospel to the Gentiles is what he says. I would just say it this way. Preach the gospel uh, to the people that are mostly around you. That are the mostly kind of like you. Uh, That doesn't mean they have the same skin color as you. It just means they're the most like you. Right? They're the most like you. You know them, etc. Now, he takes it out another concentric circle in verse 9 to the next part of the commission. The first one was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the riches of Christ. As he takes it out in verse 9, he says this, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So like he said something different, if you notice. You can go ahead and put up number two. The first one is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the riches of glory. This time, we're not going to preach, but we're going to enlighten. It's not just to the Gentiles, but it's to everyone. And it's not about the riches of Christ. It's the plan of the mystery. So he, he changes it completely. He, t- he, he broadens it out completely. Now, you might read it at first and think he just kind of says the same thing. He doesn't say the same, basically the same thing. There's three, as you can see, key differences Three key differences. We're going to look at each one of them. First one is that the word preach turns to enlighten. What's the key thing he's trying to do there? Because we're still going to preach. As we enlighten, we're still going to proclaim. But as he changes the word from preach to enlighten, he's trying to help us understand something. That certainly will still euangelizo people. But now he's talking about 
phos. This is the Greek word phos or light. Photizo is what we're doing. We're enlightening people. And what we're doing is, certainly we're proclaiming, but what he's trying to do by saying enlighten is he's trying to help us understand the condition of the level of darkness of ignorance that people are in. They're in darkness and ignorance because they don't know truth and they don't understand it. So what we do is we come and we shine the gospel light on them. And when light hits darkness, they realize just the darkness that they were in. That's by telling them about who Christ is. So the first thing is that we enlighten. Now, the second thing is that we don't just enlighten Gentiles, but we enlighten everyone. He turns here, and this is vastly important because the gospel concerns both Jews and Gentiles. As he's just told us in chapters 2, the gospel now brings mutual reconciliation and joint membership between Jews and Gentiles. And so he's trying to help them see that you preach the gospel to everyone because all the different Uh, trophies and ethnicities all over the whole world are being brought together into one new man. And he wants them to see you preach the gospel to everyone now. So as we're, you certainly preach the gospel to people who are most like you, but you also take it a step out and you preach the gospel to people that aren't like you. Maybe they speak a completely different language. Maybe they live in a different continent, but you preach the gospel. You enlighten everyone. Now, the last thing is that he switches. He doesn't say, Preach about the riches of Christ, but he actually says about the plan of the mystery. And what he's doing here is trying to uh, help people see that while the emphasis is always about Jesus, it's always about Jesus. The way the plan about Jesus is carried out is by the church. So here's what he's saying when he says the plan of the mystery. What he's doing is the riches. When you talk about the riches of Christ... All the focus should be on Jesus because it's all about Christ. And it always has been about Christ. But the way that we, when we proclaim the gospel on the riches of Christ, whenever we move over to what it says, the plan of the mystery. And that means that now, okay, Jews and Gentiles are coming together, as it says into 2.15, and to this one new man. What do we call this one new man? Is he giving us a word? Is there some kind of language that we can describe this one new man that he's talking about in 2.15? Yes, there is. And what he's doing is, while it's always about Jesus, he's helping us understand this one new man, this plan of the mystery, is the church. So he's not de-emphasizing Jesus to emphasize the church. He's keeping the emphasis on Jesus. And now he's saying, and the way that it happens is the church. The way that it happens is the church. So when we talk to people about the plan of the mystery... What we're doing is that he's pushing our minds to see that it happens through the church. Why would you say that, Fudd? How do you know that? Because it says, verse 10, through the church. (laughs) So he's helping us see what this one new man when Jews and Gentiles come together is called. They're called the, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembled ones, the church. That's what they're called. Now, if you're thinking to yourself right now, all right, if you're saying concentric circles out, Fudd, And he just said Jews. I mean, sorry, he just said Gentiles. And then he said everyone. Everyone should cover basically everyone. Exactly. So who's who's the next circle out? How is it even possible? Who who do you go preach to? Like the the animals, the the trees, the wall? Like what's the third central? Look at this. This is going to blow your mind. We already read it to you twice. And you might not have picked it up yet. Look at this third circle out that we, the church... Preach the gospel to. It's crazy. 
that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Put up the third part of our commission. Now, we're moving from the Gentiles to everyone to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're going from preach to a light and to making known the riches of Christ's glory, the plan of mystery, to the manifold wisdom of God. This third concentric circle out means we are actually, in some way, we are making known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This means we make known to the angels the gospel. That's crazy, right? Like, holy moly. I'm preaching to angels. I don't even ever see them. They never say anything back. Do do they get saved? I guess they already saved. How does that work? All right, that's good questions. Here's what we're saying here. So as as we're working out, we are actually going from the Gentiles to everyone to the angels in heaven. Let's like buzz light year to infinity and beyond, right? We're going as far as we can with this thing. Um, so here's how it works. You're asking, how's that happen? Don't miss what I just pointed us to. I mean, this is maybe the most crucial phrase is in verse 10, how this works. So that, look at those next three words. Through the church. Through the church. That is not a throwaway phrase at all. Paul is intimating this. That when the first two concentric circles are done correctly, we preach the gospel to the Gentiles, we preach the gospel to everyone. When those two things are done correctly, that actually those two, when people are getting saved, people are meeting Jesus, that is actually giving birth to and giving rise to and giving growth to the church itself. When people are getting saved that are Jews and Gentiles, everyone, that means that people are actually coming, becoming a part of the church. So when the first two concentric circles are done correctly, it actually gives rise to the birth and the growth of the church itself. Okay, so since that's through the church, the manifold wisdom might be made known to the heavenly authorities. Since we have to understand that it's always been the church, plan A has always been the church. We have to understand how we bring a message to angels in heaven. How does the church bring a message to the angels in heaven? Like what it says, through the church, here it is. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to them. Manifold wisdom. The church is making known to the angels in heaven the manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold can also be translated multicolored. Multicolored. So there's this thing called the Septuagint. uh, Short LXX. And what it is, is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And when it was written in Hebrew, these people, you know, several centuries later said, oh, you know what? We have the, the Old Testament in Hebrew. Let's translate it to Greek. So they take the, the Old Testament written in Hebrew and then they translate it into Greek. The Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Septuagint is just from the word 70 because the legend is that 70 scholars translated it. That's why LXX, 50, 10, 10. Anyway, back to the point that I'm making. So whenever they're translating the, uh, the Old Testament into Greek, when they get to the story about Joseph's many colors, you know, that his dad gave him, they actually use this particular Greek word, manifold, multicolored. He has a manifold coat of many colors. So that's what he's trying to help us understand here is that the, the church is showing the multicolored Manifold wisdom of God. Now we're starting to get a little bit of traction of how we proclaim the gospel to angels. Something that they did not know. Because, don't miss this, angels are not omniscient. They're not God. 
they don't know everything. So what is it that we're telling them that they didn't know? We're telling them the multicolored wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God. Don't forget the whole context of what we've been talking about the entire time in chapters 1 and 2, which is that Jews and Gentiles are coming together. So here's how we proclaim the gospel. John Stott helps us understand a little bit better. He says this new phenomenon, this new multiracial humanity in it, the wisdom of God's being displayed. The church now as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members, members come from wide ranges of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Just think about that for a second. There are lots of communities around the world circled around an idea or whatever that might be multifaceted, but nothing is as multifaceted, multicolored, and multi-ethnic as the church. Nothing. It is nothing. It is diversity and harmony are, are, are unique. It is God's new society, and the multicolored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the multicolored or multi-splendored wisdom of God. So this last consensual concentric circle for us to reach which is the angels in heaven who are not omniscient who do not have supreme knowledge is that they get to see by us fulfilling the first two concentric circles making the church every tongue nation ethnic group coming together to this one new man the church they get to see that and when they see that happening they learn the manifold multicolored wisdom of god because As they were standing back from eternity past and they were seeing it unfold and they saw all of these races of people hate each other and kill each other. What they never saw coming is that they would actually be together fulfilling the mission of God at one point. They're looking at how's this going to work out? They hate each other. This is never going to work. This is never. uh, What? Like what? So at that particular moment, that's when the church formed in the first century. And then they are preaching yeah, it is. And watch it. We're all going to come together. That's how it happened. L- let me let First Peter explain to us how it's happening. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ and then was indicating when it predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but to you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here it is. Into which angels long to look. So the angels love the plan of God. They love looking at the plan of God. They just, they're not, they're not omniscient. They don't know everything there is to know about the plan of God. And the way the plan of God has been unfolding in time has actually been unfolding before their eyes too. They haven't seen it. They don't know it all like God. And so the way that we have uh, preached the gospel, as it says, or or made known uh, the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heaven is by being the church and them getting to see how multicultural, multi-ethnic, People come together and actually be the church together. So Paul explains this. Uh, It wasn't the Old Testament prophets that explained the manifold wisdom of God to the angels. It wasn't the New Testament apostles that explained the manifold wisdom of God. It was actually the church. It was us. Us that explained the manifold wisdom of God. The multicolored Vision and wisdom of God of Jews and Gentiles coming together to be the one new man. We should be amazed at this because the truth is that we're actually a part of that. We are 
here at Remedy Church and every local church. We're a part of that. We get to see the fruits of the church fulfilling those first two concentric circles coming together and them continually being amazed at longing to look at us uh, being the church and them therefore understanding what is the manifold wisdom of God. So uh, it's a privilege then, I think. I think the whole point of this is it's a privilege then to be a part of the local church. So I'm going to speak to Remedy now. It's a privilege to be a part of any local church. I, I agree. But I'm going to since I'm here, (laughs) I'm going to say it's a privilege to be a part of Remedy Church because we get to play a part in displaying the manifold wisdom of God to the angels. We also get to play a part of of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and to everybody around us. But we also um, get to be a part of explaining the manifold wisdom to the angels. And it's after he has explained all this thing about just how important it is to know who they are, to know that they're Jews and Gentiles, this one new man, now is the church. And after he's finally explained to them in this excursus, now I think you get it. Now I'm going to pray for you in 314. Now I'm going to pray for you that you finally understand who you are. The prayer makes so much more sense in 314. It has, has, a, has a deeper weight to it when he prays for the Ephesian church. To be used by God. Because he helps them understand exactly what it is they're doing. Not only that. It's even better. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. So it's always been from eternity past. And only that plan. That through the church. And through the church only. That God would build the kingdom. God would build the kingdom. And then in verse 12, it says, in whom we have boldness, talking about Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith, through him. What this means is, Remedy Church, you are, specifically you, absolutely, I mean, absolutely crucial to God's eternal purpose. Every church is crucial, but you go here. So this means you specifically are absolutely crucial To God's eternal purpose. Every single person in here. Every one of you. We all should be flabbergasted. To be. To be uh, chosen by God to be a minister. Given this privilege. To tell people about Jesus. So let's. Let's be the church then. Since we have this high privilege. Let's be the church. It's an honor. To be a part of God's eternal purposes. So let's share the gospel with our first concentric circle. Let's share the gospel with our second concentric circle. And as those things are happening, it gives birth. It gives growth to a church. Which then displays the manifold wisdom of God. To the authorities and powers. Even in the heavenly realms. And if you're not a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus. I want you to note this one thing it says in verse 12. That you can have boldness access Through faith. So if you're not a believer in Jesus. Put your faith in him today. He died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for you. His death. His burial. His resurrection. Are your death. Your burial. And your resurrection. If you put your faith in him. Ask forgiveness of your sins. Then you will be completely forgiven. And like Christ rose from the dead. Defeating Satan's sin and death. You also have life. Defeating Satan's sin and death in your life. And now you have as it says. Access, boldness of access with confidence to the throne room of Christ. You have complete access to God himself through faith. 
So if you're not a believer in Christ, become one now. Trust in Jesus now. Today is the day. Why would you ever put that off? You have this amazing privilege to be a part of the church. God's eternal plan, which is what he set forth from always. So we have this, <laughs> this amazing gift from God to be Remedy Church. To be a local expression of this. A body used by him to reach this world. So let's, uh, let's take that seriously. Let's realize that the mystery has been revealed to us. And we also have been put on, on mission. And let's reach this city. Let's reach this world with this mission.